The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. This week we are continuing in our series, Study of John. It just so happens so beautifully how it lines up with exactly what we're celebrating. Last week we began studying the story of Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. Nicodemus being this man who is a leader in Israel. He is a Pharisee, so he is one who is... um, knowledgeable of the law. He is one as a purveyor of the law. He teaches the law to everyone else. So he's that kind of leader in Israel. And he comes to Jesus in the dark of night. Just to set up the context of this, let's go ahead and read the verses that uh, precede what we're going to be focusing on, what Brad just read, just so that we know the context and understand how this story is unfolding. Because we actually are last week, this week, and next week, we'll continue in this same conversation that he has with Nicodemus. So it began last week, if you go back to chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Nicodemus comes under the cover of night. We talked about that. Again, you see these themes that are being revisited by John that he opens up. We told you that in chapter 1, why we went so slowly through it as he sets up everything there that he's going to go back to or refer back to over and over again as he goes throughout the rest of his gospel. Here again, there is light and darkness. Nicodemus comes in the dark of the night to him. He starts by commending Jesus, but he commends him only as a teacher. He says, I know that you are this great rabbi. I know that you are a great teacher. Obviously, uh, the power of God is behind you, but he only elevates him to a teacher. So Jesus, as Nicodemus comes to him and says these things, It's like Jesus cuts out all the chit-chat and he gets right down to it, doesn't it? I mean, almost like very abruptly, he changes direction. He changes where the, the conversation is going and he heads straight to the point. And this is this famous passage where Jesus tells Nicodemus that he has to be born again. And so it's very interesting because Nicodemus is this great rabbi. He is a leader of Israel, but yet he comes in the dark of night to this ragamuffin rabbi who is not sanctioned by the Pharisees or the Sadducees, but yet demonstrates the power of God. Yet the one who should be demonstrating the power of God is very interested of why his teaching, why his life, why his actions line up more with the power of God than maybe his own do. And so he's very intrigued, he's interested, and he comes in the dark of night because he doesn't want to be seen with Jesus. He doesn't want to be seen asking or inquiring of Jesus or even affirming Jesus 
Jesus because that could be bad for his future. That could be bad for his job. But he's still curious because he can't let go of the fact that even though it seems so far-fetched, there's something to this. There's something about this guy. And so he has to know. So he goes to him in the dark of night. And then all of a sudden, as he kind of opens up very eloquent, the conversation, very kindly commending Jesus for being a great rabbi, Jesus cuts to the point. And he's like, listen, you're never going to make it to the kingdom of God unless you're born again. <laughs> Nicodemus was like, whoa, I didn't know we were going there that fast with this. So it's interesting that Jesus says something very simple, but yet this learned man who is an expert in the law of Israel has trouble understanding it. I mean, you think about what Jesus says, it's very simple as far as the way he states it. You must be born again. You have to be born again. Nicodemus, the very learned man, takes this very simplistic thing and makes it very complicated in his head. I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense. How can I enter again into my mother's womb and be born again? Now, I think this is interesting because Nicodemus has just said that he believes God is with Jesus because of the miraculous signs that he has done. Now, I want to compare this to another encounter that Jesus just had that we studied a few weeks back, and that was with Nathaniel. Remember, Nathaniel was also one who didn't really believe in Jesus in the beginning. And Philip is actually the one who went to Nathaniel and said, you've got to come and here we found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And, and, and Nathaniel's response was, can anything good come from Nazareth? And what was Philip's response? Do you remember what he said? He didn't try and convince him. He said something very simple, which was what? Come and see. Come and see. And so Nathaniel comes and he follows after Philip. Philip is walking with Nathaniel. And as they're approaching Jesus, Jesus sees him off in a distance. And he says, now there is an Israelite in whom there is no guile or no deceit. And Nathaniel's like, how do you even know me? He goes, oh, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. And so they have that whole interaction where Jesus knows something that Nathaniel knows nobody knows about him. And in that moment, he says, you are the Christ. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus says, you marvel because I say that I saw you sitting under the fig tree. Greater things than this you will see. You will see the Son of Man, or you will see a heaven opened up and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, here's what's interesting. You have almost the same exact scenario with Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus, he's not very sure. He commends him for being a good teacher, but yet he doesn't proclaim him as Nathaniel does. Nathaniel says, You are the king of Israel. All Nicodemus is willing to give him is, You're a good rabbi. And notice the difference of Jesus' interaction. It's like Jesus knows his heart, which John already told us that Jesus knew the heart of people before he ever talked. He knew where Nicodemus was. He knew that it was going to take more for Nicodemus. He didn't say to Nicodemus, oh, you think that's amazing being born again? You're going to see greater things than that. Actually, what he says to Nicodemus is, if you can't grasp this, you're not going to be able to go any further. This is it. This is the key to getting into heaven. This is the key to understanding salvation. If you can't grasp this, you're not going to ever be able to move forward in your growth, forward in your understandings, forward in your spirituality and your righteousness. And so this is a pivotal, pivotal passage here. Now, the difference, I think, is the declaration of who Jesus is. Nathaniel, you're the king of Israel. Nicodemus, you're a good teacher. So... There is this spiritual versus physical that's being developed here in this passage with Nicodemus. 
Jesus uses a physical dimension to create this spiritual reality or this spiritual truth. He says, you have to be born again. So Nicodemus, though, because he is so stuck in this life and this world and, and, and the physical and the temporal, he can't think beyond a physical birth. And so he responds, how can this be? How can I actually enter into my mother's womb a second time and be born? And Jesus basically says to them, you're not understanding what I'm saying. You're thinking only from the spiritual. You are a teacher of the law and you can't understand these things. You of all people should know that the physical is a representation of the spiritual. Don't you know that the tabernacle is a, a physical explanation of heaven, the spiritual? Don't you know that the sacrifice is a physical expression of something truly spiritual, of God forgiving and God extending salvation to his people? So everything in the Old Testament is a physical represent, representation of something spiritual that is revealed to us in the New Testament. Notice how he starts out in verse 9 of our passage for today. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Now, I'm imagining that there was this long, dramatic pause in between where Jesus finishes that last uh, verse in verse 8 and where Nicodemus responds in verse 9. Have you ever been in that situation where... You're, you're matched up with someone and you know that they know more than you. And they're talking in these, this language and it's like a little bit beyond you. And you think, I'm going to keep up with this guy and I'm going to kind of keep throwing around there. And, I'm gonna... and then there's this pause when they say something, they ask you a question and you stop for a minute and you don't realize how much time is passing. But in your mind, you're thinking through, oh, I could say this or I could say that or I could. But if I say that, what if I got that wrong? And then all of a sudden you just admit you don't know anything and you're like, I don't understand what you're talking about. And in that moment, there's a little bit of freedom, right? Because you don't no longer are trying to battle that person's wits. You're, you've already admitted, you've, you've humbled yourself and you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about, be honest with you. That's almost exactly what's happening here with Nicodemus. They're having this conversation and, and Jesus is talking about these things that are bigger than him, that are further than him. And he can't quite grasp those things. And I think there's this moment where Jesus ends with this explanation of the wind comes and it goes and you have nowhere, no idea where it comes from. You have no idea where it's going. So it is for the people who are in the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is like, how can these things be? Now, in that moment, in that pause, I think, and I'm adding to the scripture here in the sense of I'm adding some dramatic effect to it, but I don't think it's far-fetched to think Jesus using that analogy. They're out at nighttime. This is in Israel. It is, there are a lot of cool breezes that blow through Israel at night. Can you imagine him standing there, Jesus just using this analogy of the wind, and, and there's you know Nicodemus's beard kind of fluttering in the wind as it's blowing by, and he's contemplating these things, and he's thinking through it. And ultimately, in all of his knowledge that he has garnered from his understanding, his Jewish upbringing, he cannot fathom the things that Jesus is talking about. And so the learned man of Israel has to humble himself before this ragamuffin rabbi who came out of the wilderness from somewhere. And he has to admit, I don't understand the things that you're talking about. How can this be? See, a conversation that is this deep is not a conversation that can be hurried. 
And Jesus does, and he's very patient with Nicodemus. He, he presents these principles, but it's almost like he gives them these things to say, you need to go think about this. You need to ponder this. You need to reflect on it. He doesn't just come right out and give him exactly what he wants to hear. He throws it out there in these different analogies, these illustrations that Nicodemus should be able to comprehend and should be able to understand and to embrace. Yet what he's actually trying to demonstrate to Nicodemus is it doesn't matter how much you know, you will never understand or embrace this until you back out of who you think you are and how spiritual you are and you approach me in simplicity and a willingness to humbly believe and accept who I am. It's actually what Jesus calls all of us to do. And people who have the biggest struggle with following Christianity are the people who want and demand answers to all of their questions before they will ever follow after Christ. And ultimately, the way to Christ and the way to everlasting life is as simple as this. Come and see. Come and see. And when you see, believe. That's what scripture paints for us. It's not this mental ascent to understanding all these things. It's not this, this deep theological embrace of, of how God saves each soul. It is understanding that somehow in the mystery of it all, just as the wind is so mysterious, so our salvation is mysterious. Where did it come from? Where did it go? I don't know, but I know that I'm right here and I believe. Why? Because I've seen. If you go back into the gospel of John and uh, I kind of highlighted in, in my own scriptures here. Uh, when you go back to chapter one specifically, if you notice how many times that he talks about seeing something, uh, look back at verse 29 at chapter one of John. It says, the next day he saw Jesus. Verse 32, and John bore witness, I saw the spirit descend on him from heaven. Verse 34, and I have seen and borne witness that this is the son of God. Verse 36, and behold, the lamb of God. He looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the lamb of God. So he sees and he makes a declaration there. Verse 30. Jesus turned and saw them following. Verse 39, he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and they saw. Go down to verse 46. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael. Uh, Jesus answered him before Philip called you. You were under the fig tree. I saw you. Verse 50, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. You believe you will see great things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see. Do you see the theme that, that, that John is setting up for us? There's something about seeing. There's something that's central about seeing in the kingdom of God that, that is necessitates believing. So believing can't happen without seeing. And so we're constantly being invited to come and see, to come and see, to come and see, to come and experience, to see this for ourselves. And that continues into our passage here today. And so this conversation about seeing is something that Nicodemus has to learn because his is not about seeing, it's about understanding. It's not about what happens out here, it's what about happens up here. And so Jesus is trying to encourage him to let go of all those questions for a moment and just see what's in front of you. Experience that moment moment. It's amazing because Nicodemus almost personifies this guy who knows everything and yet knows nothing. He's a guy who knows all of the stories from the Old Testament because from his Jewish learning experience, he's had to memorize the entire Old Testament. He has those stories. He's not just familiar with them. He can quote them to you word for word without missing a beat. That's his education. And yet in this picture, 
he's flabbergasted. He doesn't know what Jesus is talking about. And Jesus is saying to him, you of all people should get this. Aren't you a teacher in Israel? Look how he continues in verse 10. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? I mean, Jesus continues just to blow his mind with this, doesn't he? I mean, Nicodemus is, I mean, Jesus is just running circles around him, but he's yet simply stating things in a very simplistic way. He's saying, if I'm telling you about these earthly things here, how in the world, if you can't understand that, how are you going to understand the depth of spirituality that I'm calling you to? How can you understand these deeper spiritual things if you can't understand the things that are right in front of you? Because he is a purveyor of the law. He does know exactly what the Old Testament talks about. And Jesus is saying to him, you of all people should know this because you understood and studied that. You should see that those were all foreshadowings of what is to come. And the reason you have come to me tonight is because there's something in you that knows that there's a fulfillment of everything that you've longed for, everything that you've studied, that somehow it could be found in me. But yet you can't understand these things. You see, it isn't until we are prepared to listen to this dangerous message of the gospel that we are ready to accept the gospel at all. In verses 10 through 13, we have the first of many passages where Jesus talks about this new knowledge that's coming out a new sort of knowing. It's a way of knowing that only comes from God. It can't come from our own efforts. It can't come from our own wisdom. It can't come from us garnering knowledge and then developing understanding and then growing towards wisdom. It's never our efforts. It's something that's a gift that God gives to us. And in this moment, it's very humbling for Nicodemus to have to be told this. He is, after all, a very respected teacher in Israel. But this way of knowing and this new knowledge that we get through this way of knowing is given to us in only one way. And that is through, as Jesus says here, the mysteriousness of this. And the title is Son of Man. So as we were told back in chapter 1, verse 51, if you go back and look at what it says there, um, very clearly he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on what? The Son of Man. Yeah. So if we want to understand not only the heavenly world, but we also want to understand the way in which God is now somehow joining heaven to earth. We have to understand Jesus as the son of man. Now, there's also a little bit of difference here than what he said to Nathaniel back in chapter 1, verse 51. There he said, you will see greater things than this. You will see heaven open and angels ascending and descending on the son of man. But in this passage, notice that he says that you will see the son of man descending because he says the one who came from heaven to earth. So there's this picture of the son of man is the one who is ascending and descending, not angels ascending and descending on him. So that's a little bit different connection. There's this connection that Jesus knows these things. The reason he knows more than the teacher of the law is because he's bigger than the teacher of the law. He is one who has been in heaven himself. 
He's the one who has witnessed the glory of God because he is God. He is the creator of all things, just like John tells us at the beginning of the gospel. So his knowledge, his wisdom is far more vast than that of Nicodemus. That's why you have to come and see and believe. There's almost a lot of sadness, if you will, in Jesus' response in verse 10. How can Nicodemus, how can you, knowing what you know, how can you miss this? It's almost like Nicodemus, who is supposed to be the leader of the people, is a blind man leading the blind. And Jesus uses that analogy at another time in the Gospels. And when we think about Jesus' disappointment here, I can't help but think of my own life, and I challenge you to reflect on yours as well. How oftentimes do we know better, but yet we don't act on what we know? How oftentimes do we say that this is the truth that we build our lives upon, and yet what we really build our lives upon are the circumstances that we find ourselves in? We can say, I don't believe in stealing until stealing becomes the option that betters our situation. We can say, I don't believe in lying until lying is the thing that helps us out of the situation that we find ourselves in. That's when we know this is only true when it's convenient for us. When we're in a place where it makes us look better to believe these things and hold these things high. But when the rubber meets the road, our actions speak more to what we believe in than our words. So oftentimes we can be so critical of Nicodemus, but the truth is we live out similar lives. I wonder how often Jesus becomes saddened by our responses to him, saddened by our prayers. Not that we should ever stop praying, but sometimes we should reflect on the content of our prayers. I often go back in my journal and I'll look at the things that I've been praying about. And it's become so obvious when I do that, when I'm walking through a time that I have taken my eyes off of what's eternal and real and lasting. And I have put my eyes square on things that are temporal and short-lived because everything I'm asking for is right now, right now. Make this better for me. Make this relationship better. Give me what I want. Give me the things I need to make me feel better right now. And I've quit praying kingdom prayers. Like, Lord, I, you know, whatever I'm going through now, that's, it, it's, it's, it pales in comparison to what you have for me in eternity. Lord, help me to be a reflection of your gospel as I walk through this crisis in my life. Lord, help me to be a man of integrity as I walk through this difficult situation. Lord, help me to hold high. See, those are kingdom prayers. Those are prayers that embrace the kingdom of God and realize there's something more long-lasting than just our lives. Do we live as we truly believe that the kingdom of God is the only thing that's everlasting? What Jesus shares with him is not sophisticated doctrine, if you think about it. I mean, it's basically the ABCs of, of how you come to know God. But yet Nicodemus cannot grasp those truths, even though they're taught in that very simple way through these very earthly symbols. And the truth is there's no way he can ever understand and accept those deeper realities unless Jesus makes it known to him. And that's what he's trying to prove to him right now. All of your learnedness will not help you one bit getting into the kingdom of God. It takes a simplicity. It takes a faith as simple, of that, simple as that of a child. It is only as, taking that birth analogy again, it's only as we pass through that narrow door into the world that we've come to understanding. The reason Jesus uses that idea of being born again is not just because it's religious uh, symbolism. No, think about birth again. Think about the actual effect of birth. When you are in the womb, what are you in? 
darkness. And for circumstances beyond you, at least especially in the day before we had Pitocin and all these things that can immediately start a woman in the process of having birth. You know, back then, you, the woman didn't know when she was going to give birth and the baby didn't know. when there was, It was just something that was mysterious. And all of a sudden, the birth pains would get closer and closer and the contractions would get closer and closer. And all of a sudden, they knew this was happening and they would get prepared. But no one knew exactly. And then all of a sudden, the birth process begins. And it is a torturous process. I Believe me, I know. I'll never forget all the pain that I went through in having all of my children. <laughs> But it's all worth it to see their smiling faces. No, but actually they say in, in, in the medical field that the closest that a woman and a child come to death in their life besides death itself and is at birth. I mean, both of them teeter on the edge of death through that process. I mean, it's so, so fragile. And yet as the baby comes through the narrow tube and then is delivered into this world, what immediately happens? He transforms from darkness to light. Immediately, have you ever seen a baby as they come out and they're like, that big bright light's on them and they can't open their eyes? I mean, they're just blinded by it. So Jesus is using this analogy of birth. He's saying, you know what? Just as you were born, you gotta be born spiritually. You are spiritually in the darkness and you've gotta come out of that darkness into the light and you have to what? See. You have to see. It's that simple. You got to come and see. Just like he's already talked about over and over again in the first chapter. Come and see, come and see, come and see. Look at verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. So now Jesus is the one. He's saying, I know these things and these things are more lofty and they're above you because I have experienced this. I am the one who has been in heaven and now I have come to earth. I am the son of man. Now it's a little mysterious because Jesus refers to the son of man almost in third person here. He doesn't say I am the son of man, but as you go through the gospel of John, it becomes very clear that Jesus is talking about himself. He refers to himself as the son of man. So that's what he's talking about here. He's not talking about anybody else. He's talking about him. I was in heaven and now I have come to earth in his incarnation. No one can climb up and take these heavenly truths by force. They can't learn it. They can't embrace it because they divine it from some other source. The only way to know what heaven is like, the only way to know what is true is through the son of man who has been in heaven and has come to earth and to listen, to come and to see him. It is only Jesus who can reveal the secrets of the kingdom of heaven to any of us who may find ourselves as eager seekers. Because when Jesus tells us about God and tells us about heaven, he's telling us about his home, his experience. He's telling us about firsthand things, not something that he was taught by another prophet. Even while he is the son of man in flesh on earth, he is from heaven. He has experienced the fullness of that. It's when that we accept him that we are born into his kingdom. And the realities that are true for him, he shares with us and we accept them and believe them and embrace them because we believe he is the son of God. So heavenly things become made clear to us because we accept Jesus. We've come and seen him and we believe and we embrace him. If we do not see him and embrace him and believe him, those things stay in the darkness and they stay muddied in our understanding. We never can fully embrace them. And I think that verse 13 there is, is very enlightening. 
it's really what makes the gospel hard for so many people to accept. Because we are okay with Jesus as a great teacher, but it's hard to accept him as God. And before you say, no, it's not really that hard, again, I want to draw you back to the analogy I was talking about earlier. It's very easy for us to say, oh, I believe in Jesus. He is Lord. He is my God. But what do your actions say? Our actions a lot of times say that we believe he's a good teacher, but we don't believe that he's king. Because if we believe that he's king, we do everything that he says. If we believe that he's God, we believe we belong to him and whatever he says, that's what I have to do. If we believe that he's king and we believe that he's God, then I'm not trying to figure out how to bring meaning and purpose into my life or direct the destiny of my life. I am looking to him and saying, Lord, this is your life. What do you want to do with it? Where do you want me to go? Who do you want me to see? Who do you want me to share with? Who do you want me to serve? It's all about him. It's not about me. But if I see him as a good teacher, what I'm doing is going, you know what? This is what I want to do with my life. I wonder if any of this helps me with what I want to accomplish with my life. Oh, look, that passage right there is exactly, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Listen, it's not talking about your dreams for your own life. It's talking about you can walk through the process of sanctification because God will strengthen you in Jesus Christ. It's not talking about that God wants to condone your own ambitions for your own life, that he's there just to figure out, hey, once you know what you want to do with your life, then hey, I'm going to give you some blessing in that and help you pursue it. No, God already has very specific intentions for your life, and he has gifted you in a way that you would never, ever guess it just by knowing your own personality. You say, oh, man, I'm, I'm cut out for this. You have no idea. God doesn't pick people who are cut out for things to do things. Oftentimes he picks people who aren't cut out for whatever it is he has for them to do so they don't get the glory, so they understand that it is he who is working. Do you see that? So oftentimes we get into that mindset of Jesus as a good teacher. And that's the way you can know if you've accepted him as a good teacher or if you accepted him as king. It's all in the way that you pray, in the way that you live life, in the way that you release your life to him. Little side note here, you're seeing these themes again from the first chapter already reoccurring. Notice that Nicodemus comes at night. Again, light and darkness is there in the first chapter. The ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Here we see the ascending and descending of the Son of Man. And, and so it continues into verse 14 and 15. And this is really the crux of this passage right here. Look at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Underline that word believes because that's crucial too. If you go all the way back into John, the first chapter, he talks a lot about believing and that we have to believe in him. Uh, it says in uh, verse 11 of John chapter 1, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who, what does it say? Believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Do you see how Jesus is revisiting exactly what John laid out with, for us in verse, uh, or in chapter 1? 
But he does it in a weird way, doesn't he? Because he goes back and refers to this passage from the Old Testament that is very strange. I mean, of all the things that you could go back to, Jesus, and talk about what salvation is like, you could have went to Passover and talked about Passover for a moment. Or maybe going back to the garden and talked about through the seed of the woman, you were going to bring the Messiah and that you're the fulfillment of that. Why are you going back to this passage where you are relating yourself to a serpent? I mean, just as the serpent has to be lifted up, so the son of man must be lifted up. And you're thinking, now, I'm not nearly as smart as Jesus, in case you were wondering. Uh, I, I would have definitely went to another passage. I would have steered Jesus away from that passage. That would have been my wisdom. I said, that's, that's too confusing. But Jesus is intentional. And of all the passages that he could have picked, if he picked that one out of nowhere, you better believe that it is the best passage for what he's trying to relate. So as we try and figure out what's going on here, let's understand a little bit about where that story comes from. If turning your Bibles to Numbers chapter 21, this is the passage that he's referencing. Now, this is a very obscure passage where it's about the wilderness wanderings of Israel. Remember, they've been freed from Egypt. They've been brought into the wilderness, but because of their rebellion, they're not ready to go into the land that God has promised them yet. So they are wandering around in the wilderness. And as they wander around, God is providing for them miraculously because there isn't sustenance in the wilderness. There's no way to grow. There's not vegetation out there. There's no way to keep animals alive. So God sustains his people miraculously. They get water from a rock. They, they get food delivered to them from, from heaven. I mean, it has nothing on Uber Eats, right? I mean, every single day, there was your provision from God right in front of you. You didn't have to call for it. You didn't have to order. It was there. But what happened is their hearts started remembering how good Egypt was. Now, think about that for a moment. How good Egypt was? Have you forgotten what happened there? Yeah, they only remembered the good things. They remembered they had a variety of food to eat. They remembered that every once in a while they had meat to eat. You know why Pharaoh fed them meat? Because they were slaves and he needed them to work. So they needed them to be healthy. So he did feed them some food so that they could continue to work. So they were starting to remember the good things and forgot the bad things. Don't we do that a lot? You ever reflect on your life before Christ and thought, man, I would love to go back and do that again. I'd love to go back and experience that again. And oftentimes what happens is we remember the pleasure that comes from those decisions, but we don't remember the pain. We don't remember the consequences. We don't remember the broken relationships, the disappointment that we caused in other people's lives. We don't remember the personal consequences, that the guilt and the shame that we felt. All we remember is that one experience, and we long for that experience. And somehow in our minds, we forget everything that's attached to it. It's exactly what happened to Israel. And they began to murmur and complain against God and against Moses. Listen to what they said. This is uh, Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. They spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food. Do you hear what they say? There's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Number one, they just said there is no food. Now they're saying, well, we do have food, but this is worthless food, and we loathe this food. I mean, they loathe the miraculous. You know what this is similar to? I think this is similar. This is because we celebrated Passover last night. How easy is it for us to loathe the Lord's Supper? 
I mean, you come up, you get this little thing of grape juice, and you get this little bitty cracker that has no taste. It's like cardboard. Eat that, and you're like, that's not food. And to loathe what it represents very easily because, listen to me, because it doesn't touch our palate, our physical being, because it doesn't bring me pleasure in that moment, I can loathe it. I don't, I don't understand the mystery of what it represents. I don't understand the depth and the eternal life that is made available to me through what this represents. I forget all of that and all I think about is what pleases me. This doesn't please me. That's exactly where they are right now. They're experiencing some miraculous provision of God and they say, you know what? This is worthless. Don't you know that made the Lord angry? Look at verse six. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Let me ask you, pay attention to that last part. What did they have to do to the bronze serpent? Look. Look and live. Look and live. Did they have to understand what it was made of? They have to understand who made it, who fashioned it. They have to understand the history of the serpent throughout the Old Testament. They have to understand all the different dimensions of, of serpents and how serpents represent this and this culture and that and that culture. No, look and live. There's something even bigger than that. Notice that God didn't answer their prayer. What did they ask for? Look at the text again. What did they ask for? Ask God to take it away. God doesn't take them away, but he says, I will provide a provision out of it. This is a beautiful picture. Again, obviously we're relating this to the cross. This is what Jesus is relating it to. Isn't it amazing that when we get saved, God doesn't take us out of the sin-filled world, but he gives us a way to be forgiven of those sins. But as we journey through this life, we still have to deal with the consequences of sin. We still have to deal with a sin-infested world. Just like uh, Richie was praying earlier and Brad was talking about in Sri Lanka. I mean, we're still going to, even though we're believers and following Christ and that he's big enough and he's strong enough, we still experience oppression. We still experience persecution. But God has given us a way. And what is our way? Look to the cross. Have you suffered to this point yet? There's eternal life. Just hold on. Just keep walking. Just believe. Look to the cross and believe. Look to the cross and believe. It's even deeper than that. When you think about all that we have here, number one, this story, I believe Jesus is relating it because of some things that fit perfectly into the gospel story. He says very clearly, I'm not gonna go put a whole lot on this because the text doesn't put a whole lot on it, but I do think there's possibly a connection here, and that is this. Jesus says, just as, he doesn't say just as a serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the son of man will be lifted up. He says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so the son of man will be lifted up. 
Well, who ends up lifting up the Son of Man? Now, don't answer that real quickly because I want you to think about that. Who, who ends up lifting them up? Now, here's the thing. I don't mean this in a negative way towards these people, that these people are responsible for the death of Jesus. But Jesus says in John chapter 8, he's speaking to the Pharisees, and he says, you will lift me up. Now, why does he say the Pharisees are going to lift him up? Because obviously we know the Romans were the ones that crucified him and, and picked him up on the cross. Ultimately, we know it's our sin that caused him to. Why, why does Jesus say that you will lift me up? Here's why. Listen, I think. Because the Pharisees are the seed of Moses. They're the purveyors of the law. What does Moses represent? The law. The law says, here's what it takes to be saved. Did the people meet that expectation in the wilderness? So here's your provision because you can't meet it. And now in the New Testament, what do you have? But those who are the representatives of the law, again, putting up saying, we don't meet the expectation of the law, but if you look to this, you can find forgiveness. Now, beyond that, let's think again, why in the world would God tell Moses to create a serpent. I thought the scripture says, don't make any graven images. Well, number one, it says, don't make graven images of God. The serpent doesn't represent God. The serpent represents the people's curse. Now, why in the world would we say in this picture that the serpent represents the curse? Of course, we can understand that, right? Go all the way back to the garden. Who's the one who brought this about? We, we bought his lie. There it is. He's the one who brought this curse. Curse falls among humanity for Adam, for Eve, for the uh, creation itself. We were all cursed because we listened to that serpent. Now, all of a sudden, when they're in rebellion, these serpents come in, and their, uh, God's response to their prayer is, I will lift up a serpent, and if you look to that serpent, you will be healed. So God, in essence, is saying, I want you to look up to the thing that is ultimately the curse so that you can find your healing by coming face to face with the curse. What happens in the gospel? Jesus is the one who is accursed on our behalf. He's a picture of the curse. Why? Because he takes the full wrath of God. Why are these snakes coming into the camp to begin with? The wrath of God. He's angry. He's angry at their rebellion. He's angry at their obstinacy. He's angry because they don't believe, they don't understand, they don't appreciate. And yet, even in that, we see his grace of saying, even though you can't meet the demands of my law, I'm going to provide another way out. So the raising of the bronze serpent <clears throat> in the Old Testament is a picture of what God was going to do to take care of the sin problem of people in the new. Not only that, the serpent is made out of what? Bronze. Now, that's important. It's important because of this reason. If you understand Old Testament theology, you understand that bronze represents humanity. If you study the tabernacle, you'll notice that outside the tabernacle, there is a bronze uh, altar of sacrifice. There's a bronze laver. And there are bronze that's a part of the posts that encircle the tabernacle. That's because everything outside the holy place and holy of holies is representative of the temporal of humanity. But once you go into the holy place and then the holy of holies, everything's gold because everything gold represents who God is. So the outside is the humanity. The inside is the deity and the divine. 
Why would God tell him to make this out of bronze? Because it represents that somehow in the New Testament, in the fulfillment of what this is an image of, it would be a man who would be lifted up. He would be accursed because of our sin and our rebellion. And to find salvation, listen to me, we have to look. We have to look at that cross. And we're good in our culture of trying to make that cross cleaned up a little bit. Let me tell you something. We wear it around our neck a lot of times. You know, it's nice and gold. We have them in our home. But let me tell you something. If the crosses that you have are not bloodied, it's not a representation of the cross. We have taken the cross and cleaned it up and made it something nice to put around our house. But the truth is the cross is meant for us to understand it as a dirty, dirty symbol of God's wrath being poured out. Because Leviticus says where there isn't the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So when you look to the cross and the scripture calls us to look at the cross, it's calling us to look at what is accursed in our place because that should have been us. We should be paying the price. We're the ones that rebelled. But God in his love sent his son to be accursed for us. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is what? Hanged on a tree. That's what Paul says. And he's quoting a passage from the Old Testament. And he's saying, don't you see how this all comes together? Don't you see how the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of the new? Don't you see this beautiful picture of the gospel that's unfolding? This was all predestined by God in the Old Testament. The cross was not plan B. It was plan A. He knew this was going to happen. And he told us over and over and over again. He foreshadowed as many times as he could. The prophets talked about it. It's in the law of Moses. It's in the wisdom writing. And yet here, the teacher of the law came can't comprehend it. Why? Because it takes an enlightenment from God to understand. Well, how do I get that enlightenment? Listen to me. Look and see and believe. It's that simple. And yet it's that profound. It's that easy. And yet it's that complex. Because once you look and you see and you believe, that changes the way you live your life. He becomes king. God would love me so much that he would butcher his son on Calvary's cross. There's nothing that I would hold back from him. I will give, he gave me his best. I'm gonna give him everything that I have. And I'm not gonna pray these short-sighted prayers about God, help me feel better about this and help me feel better about that and help so-and-so not to hate me anymore and help me to make better decisions and help me not to look at this and do this and spend money on that. It becomes kingdom prayers of God, forget all of those things, Lord. How can your kingdom go forward? How can you use this vessel to further your purpose in my generation? How can I be used of you to draw people like Philip did with Nathaniel to say, listen, you've just got to come and see. If you come and see, he will enlighten you to for it to make sense. Here's the beautiful picture. I'm gonna fast forward to the end of John's gospel, but here at the beginning, Nicodemus comes to him and he's in this darkness. 
He comes in the dark of night. Jesus gives them this analogy of to really understand these things, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. You, just as you came out of darkness into light physically, you've got to come out of the darkness into the light spiritually. He's like, how can these things happen? I don't understand this. Listen, I'm the connection. Watch, look, see, believe. Now, we don't know a lot about what happened with Nicodemus, but he shows back up again later on. And you know where he shows up? At the cross. He's at the cross. And where he came to Jesus in darkness the first time, in the middle of the day, he identifies with his Lord. Matter of fact, when Jesus dies on the cross, there are two men that take him to his burial, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. And these two men did the work that slaves should have done. Because the law of Moses says, if you ever touch a dead body, you are unclean. And yet here is the leader of the law in Moses who says, I don't care. I'm taking this man, my Lord, to his grave. And he binds him up. And the scripture says that Nicodemus brought 70 pounds of spices and oils for Jesus' burial, 75 pounds. Why that significant? Here's why. In his day and time, that's what was required for a king's burial. Nicodemus brought enough to bury a king because he believed this is my king. And don't you know, as, as Nicodemus was standing there at the foot of the cross and he saw Jesus on there, that first conversation that he had with them, the dark of night was fresh on his mind. And all of a sudden, the enlightenment of what he understood was coming to a reality to him. He's lifted up. He's become a curse for me. He's the fulfillment of the law. Nicodemus believed because he saw and he embraced and he believed. My question to you today is, do you believe? Have you really made him your king? Or is the gospel just a good teaching that improves your life in certain areas and pursuits that you have? Is Jesus really the Lord? Have you understand him to be the one who took your place to accept God's wrath on your behalf? Or are you so oblivious to God's wrath that you continue in your rebellion? See, the choice is yours. He's been put in front of us. We've been invited to come and see and believe. I invite you in simplicity, to do the same thing today. Again, I want to remind you of what Paul says. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus becomes the object of the curse so that we could become the object of God's love. I think you understand this is John 3, 15 at the end. What's next? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him should find everlasting life. It's that simple. It's that complex. Let's pray together. God, what a beautiful picture of your gospel in the life of Nicodemus as this man who knew so much was brought to an understanding that he knew so little. A man who didn't think he needed a whole lot was brought to an understanding of, that he needed a ton, so much that he needed that he could not provide for himself. 
Lord, it's a beautiful picture of what you call all of us to, this understanding of who you are and who we are. God, forgive us for treating your provision as worthless. God, may we come and see afresh and anew this morning. Fix our eyes, not on a cleaned up cross, but one that is bloodied. One that still has the flesh and blood, Jesus, attached to it because that's where he was murdered. That's where he bled. That's where he suffered. That's where he died. And he did it so that I could be set free. So God, on this Passover, Lord, in this day of Feast of First Fruits, on our resurrection day, we reflect on the fact that Nicodemus must have been enthralled when he found out the grave was empty and his king lived. Or maybe because he believed, he knew somehow you were going to finish that story. God, I pray that you finish that story in us today. Lord, wherever the hearts are in this place, whether they're wandering or whether they are clued into you, whether they are seeking or whether they are oblivious, God, I pray that you draw their attention to you, that they would come and see and believe. And we ask this in the powerful name of Jesus, our Messiah, our Savior, our sacrifice, our Lord. Amen.